Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On the programme, Voices from the Mountains to see DLR Poetry Now Festival, which ran in Dunleary over the past few days. In her role as curator of poetry at the Mountains to CDLR Books Festival this year, Alice Lyons set out to celebrate the regenerative nature of language and poetry and how new work springs from what has gone before. The choice of poets included in the programme reflected just that, with the inclusion of Liz Berry, whose first collection, Black Country, won the 2014 Forward Prize for Best First Collection. Tom Pickard, whose inventiveness with the ballad has breathed freshness into that form, and David Ferry, whose work has been described as a true voice of feeling, as clear as a bell, from a great poet now at the great age of 92. Also there was American poet and essayist Maureen McLean, who gave the keynote address, provocatively entitled Poetry is Dead, Long Live Poetry. I spoke to Maureen McLean and we began by talking about her own background and journey towards poetry. Well, uh, for background, I would say first that I was born in central New York and my father uh, reciting some poems of Lewis Carroll's say, I wouldn't have known that that's what they were. And I would also uh, want to mention growing up in a, uh, a Catholic musical household. So the presence of hymns and liturgy mattered in terms of introducing me to all kinds of uh, patterned and rhythmic uh, speech and music. And more formally, some schooling in high school uh, introduced me to poets like E.E. E. Cummings or uh, Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill, I remember, made a big impression on me. All those great, swoony, organic, chthonic uh, poems had a, a great impact on me, and I was very drawn to things that uh, moved me without my being able to fully paraphrase them or process them. And they were lures toward a future. And I would say that then more sustained and serious reading and listening in college and in my 20s brought me further. Do you remember when you first encountered uh, the poems of William Butler Yeats, who, of course, is a constant presence in, in, in the whole world of poetry? I am conscious of first having encountered Yeats in college and probably a, a very wonderful initiation from the American critic Helen Vendler. She was and is professor of poetry at Harvard and professor of English, and she taught a very large lecture course, and it was uh, a kind of medieval lyric to, I think at the moment it might have stopped itself around Ted Hughes and Elizabeth Bishop. But in the course of that, I encountered a number of Yeats's poems in her voice, which deeply imprinted itself on my brain. And I studied for two years at Oxford after finishing my, my undergraduate education in the U.S. And there I did a paper on Yeats. And that was an extraordinary immersion and in some ways a complex and difficult one because I felt so, in a way, happily mastered by his poems, but also incredibly provoked. And that sense of a uh, both an awe and an ambivalence has continued to accompany me in my returns to Yeats over the years. And I know there are many, many Yeatses, and um, I keyed in, perhaps unsurprisingly, 
to middle and later Yeats and that sense of that titanic uh, shaping of form and hammered gold and gold enameling really created a, a paradigm for a certain kind of wrought titanic lyric for me, one that continues to be very impressive but also intermittently rebarbative. In, in your keynote talk, you, you talked about poetry in the modern-day U.S. as often an empty signifier in public discussion, uh, where poetry is typically invoked as something meant to ennoble but is rarely taught well. And art dragooned, you said, into the public sphere in shallow and predictable ways. Is it really as bad as that <laughs> at the moment in, in your home country? Well, it is true that I was being polemical and I was giving the worst version of a situation, although I don't actually think it's that distorted, my polemical summation, my polemical sketch. Certainly, what what tends to happen in the U.S., and I don't know that it happens equivalently in Ireland or in England or in Scotland, but in the U.S., there'll intermittently be an upsurge. There'll be some provocation, say, in the New York Times or the New Yorker, or there'll be a book, for example, say 20 years ago, I think it was, Dana Joya published a book, Can Poetry Matter? And of course, his answer as a poet was going to be, yes, it can matter. And there there is that sort of hygienic, eat your vitamins model of of poetry uh, ingestion and education which is truly disgusting, and it's no reason that so many people are turned off poetry in high school. Then there will also be, and this has a particular American valence, I think, the question, is rap poetry? Which I think is a profoundly obnoxious question along several axes. It's like, yes, depending on how you define poetry. Uh, Is it rhythmic measured speech? Yes. But if you are also talking about multiple traditions that might coexist and cross-pollinate, Look, rap isn't yet in the Norton Anthology, but I believe there's a Yale Anthology of hip-hop. and So I, I kind of feel that these are very rarely conversations about poetry. They're conversations about citizenship, social location, who has the right to speak. They're not the same conversation one might have about what does it mean to get some poems by heart? What does it mean to play in, in and with language? And one of my colleagues at New York University wrote a wonderful book called Heartbeats. It's about the status of the memorized poem in 19th century England and America and how poetry memorization entered the curriculum and why and how and what its effects were. And I'm the last person to be hugely authoritarian in in, um, mandating curricula, but it does seem to me it's a possible gift for kids to, to get some things by heart and not worry away at paraphrasable meaning. Another route is among, you know, the poetry zoo itself and how the fauna conduct their discussions. And I think there are a number of pretty bankrupt discussions, and there are also some fertile ones. And so I was hoping to signal that multiplicity of things. In looking at some of those tropes as well, you know, the, the, those hoary old ideas of does poetry matter, is poetry dead? Uh, you also pointed out that the predictors of, of poetry's demise and irrelevance have been around for a hell of a long time. Yes, um, in, in some parts of my life, I spend time, I spend a lot of time with British romantic poets and critics. And that's been, in a way, very heartening because one soon discovers that People like Thomas Love Peacock were writing in 1820 essays that uh, not only said that poetry was dead, but insisted that it should be dead because it was a waste of time. It was residual frippery. It was appropriate only for savages, wastrels, barbarians, children, that, that poetry 
should properly wither and die as enlightenment marched on and that uh, one should direct one's attention more to science, uh, political economy, empire building. And Peacock himself was writing in his essay, The Four Ages of Poetry, a witty polemic, and he himself was a poet. But that kind of laying out of the argument that in the modern era, we are living in an era of utility, and poetry no longer has utility. You are a fool to persist in an obsolete art. And um, some versions of that utility standard uh, have recurred ever since, and whether people will advocate the teaching of poetry because it will make better citizens, or they'll advocate the teaching of poetry uh, because it will shar- sharpen people's cognitive skills. or so. And, and there's always a, because it will do X, as opposed to, why not think about human beings as actually beings in language, and this is one of our species inheritances, and we're amputating ourselves not to make that available. Um, so to, to realize that this is a very long-standing trope is both heartening and it's also really useful to have in your back pocket when someone pops up in you know, 2015 and says, ah, oh, but things are so terrible and poetry is really, um, you know, it's dying and we need to write more accessible verse. I mean, the calls for accessible verse really inspire a murderous rage in me. Obviously, I could go on and on with a Jeremiah about this, but um, yes, realizing over you know the past fifteen or so years that that in a, in a sense these kinds of questions they come hand in hand with modernity and reflecting really the complex reflections that are required about the place of art and and play in a culture that seems to be everywhere rationalized, technologized, etc. On that point of, of the place of art, uh, could I ask you to read one of your poems that I suppose has a direct link to Irish visual art, uh, a poem inspired by the, the work of, of the Irish painter Sean Scully? This is a poem in my book, World Enough, and it's called After Sean Scully, You Have Had Your Day. And the title, um, You Have Had Your Day, was, I, I saw that in a wall text at the retrospective of Scully's work at MoMA, Um, the Museum of Modern Art in New York some years ago, and I was just bowled over by his work and also by his distillation of of looking in time and light. And you have had your day was one of his comments in the wall text. After Sean Scully. A bar on third, a beer or two, first down and ten, number the number of Sundays unchurched, uneven, unmarked, each day, a short life. Maureen, in, in, in shaping a poem like that in response to, to a work of art, are you very conscious of how the poem will look as something that people will, uh, you know, a little germ that will go in here in terms of the visual? I guess I would say I tend to think more in terms of acoustics and more in terms of pacing and measuring things out both for myself as I'm composing but also implicitly for any reader and and this poem after Sean Scully I think I intuitively landed on a very narrow column as a form and each each line is is quite minute it's either one or two words and maybe three syllables and partly it's a poem about pacing and numbering and measuring and moving slowly 
I'm very conscious of those kinds of questions about rhythm and pace. Sometimes I work in, in distinctly recognizable po- uh, forms. I have a poem called Roundel. Um, I had a sequence of triolets. Um, intermittently, I'll write a sonnet. And I'm really interested in the way these forms carry things with them and move us to new new horizons. But I also write a, a version of so-called free verse, which I guess I would say here, if not in most things, I agree with T.S. Eliot, who said there is no such thing as free verse. <laughs> and I think Pound said, no verse is free for a man who wants to get the job done. And um, we're rhythmic creatures, and some people are more visually oriented. I tend to uh, hold things more in the ear, but of course the way it appears on the page ends up being very important. And I think I tend to oscillate between a very minimalist and a maximalist uh, density on the page. Your book, My Poets, uh, I suppose part memoir, part meditation on the power of poetry and a whole celebration of poetry. Um, In many ways, it's a remarkable sustained work of praise for poetry. Um, What inspired it and how did you set about writing that book? I think, like most things, it was multiply inspired, and I can trace a few local seeds of it. I I had written a lot of critical essays and reviews over the years for some for newspapers, some for literary journals, and then some in a more scholarly academic key. And I had often felt in, in say, the past 10 years, um, a kind of impatience with uh, an explanatory prose. And, and, and I was always a little worried about the possibility of becoming a village explainer. That was a little nagging thorn, I would say. More positively, I was really, over the years, taken with with books and projects like uh, Susan Howe's remarkable book, My Emily Dickinson, which is uh, uh, maybe a ghost book behind this book. I loved William Carlos Williams's very strange book, In the American Grain, which is also very stylistically performative. And he, he inhabits what he thinks of as Walter Raleigh's style. And, and it's a it's a very strange and interesting book. And I had a few invitations to contribute to some events and occasions, and one was on Fanny Howe, the American poet uh, who has herself a very strong presence in Ireland and connection to Ireland. And I just started giving myself permission to write a more exploratory prose and weaving together the quotation of poets whose work uh, I carried with me and admired with meditations in and around those quotations. So that was one germ, and another was um, meditating on a word in Chaucer, the word cankadort, which uh, only appears once in Chaucer and apparently in the English language until my book, which I'm very excited about. Um, I hope I can sneak it into the OED. And it seems to mean um, an impasse, a, uh, a, a crux, um, um, being stuck, uh, and it might have a relation to a move in chess. It seems to have a etymology linking it up to Arabic, but... Cankadort held for me something of the aura of reading Chaucer and also the aura of falling in love with a woman there uh, that put me in uh, a huge life crux. And those things were entwined in a way that the word distilled. So I wrote some of these essays, and then I came to realize that this was a possible thread for registering something that's always felt very native to me, which is 
understanding my life experience through and around signal poets. And this was an opportunity to enact that in prose and and to to work with some different forms and to try some things out. And there's an abecedary in there, a kind of praise poem to translators listed in alphabetical order because so much of what's mattered to me literarily has come to me through the amazing work of translators. And um, I wanted to highlight that. I have uh, a couple of kentos in the book, and those are poems stitched out of quotation. So they seemed in miniature to distill the commitment of the book, that one could speak oneself or be spoken with other poets. So all of those things came together, and, and each essay had its own logic, form, style, and, and hopefully there are resonances across the book. But um, it was a very interesting and a very exhausting project, I have to say. <laughs> but it was, it was very interesting. And it, there are chapters on Percy Bysshe Shelley and uh, various English and Scottish Romantic poets, a chapter that weaves a meditation on Gertrude Stein and Elizabeth Bishop, poets who tend not to be paired typically in standard accounts of, of genealogies and likes and dislikes, but I felt, I like them both. What's the problem? So I wanted to put them together and make them speak together, and that's written in a Steinian idiom. And um, other chapters on William Carlos Williams, on the poet American poet Louise Glick, Emily Dickinson. Yeah, so it was a really interesting opportunity and swerve in my writing. So I've been really happy to be able to have sit with that. To give people a sense maybe of, of the playfulness and, and richness of the book, I wonder if you'd, you'd read a poem in the form of a Q&A from the, from the oh, beginning, sure. uh, which is almost like a poetic manifesto, a manifesto for the book. This was actually, I think, the very last thing I wrote, and I was really stumped on how to begin this book because it's not, it's, it's loosely chronological, but it's not in any standard way childhood, then adolescence. That, so it didn't work that way. And then I realized I had written a poem in my first book called Catechism, and it's in a question and answer form. And then I realized, oh, this actually is the proper form for introducing this project and anticipating some questions a reader might have and also beginning that work of quotation and citation and, and hopefully conjuring a space that a reader might uh, join um, me in. And so each question is answered with a quotation from a poet whom I don't specify, but some poems will probably leap out to some readers as very familiar and others will be mysterious. And people quoted on route include everybody from Wordsworth to Emily Dickinson to, I believe, Yeats appears here somewhere. And, and part of the point is one need not know who wrote them. These are our human inheritance. And we carry these things in us uh, whether it's pop music, lines from movies, lines from TV, these are held within us and are also shareable. And I wanted that to be an overture to the book. Proem in the form of a Q&A. Coming back to, I suppose, the, again, the forces and impulses that go into the, the shaping of a, of a poetic mind, you know, for you in part, music, song, the rhythms of hymns, of what's sung, of what's made. Uh, and I was thinking about uh, also then the work of Tom Pickard and, and in talking about him, about how poetry must remain fresh and true, you talk about his jump-started English, which I think is a marvellous phrase. Um, what is it in his work which sometimes... He looks to the ballad tradition that for you makes something 
it eternally new. I really uh, love Tom Picard's work, and I was particularly taken by his book, The Ballad of Jamie Allen. The book is a very interesting uh, collage of forms and materials, and so you will get prose blocks from the archive or from letters uh, among dukes and earls who are trying to get him sprung from jail. But you'll also get these extraordinary, what, what look like just um, beautiful 21st century free verse lyrics, erotic lyrics. And in fact, some of those poems were published in another of Tom's books just under his name. And and I think that that sense of the mobility and the floating power of, of lyric is something Tom is very, he's a wonderful channeler of that. And he also, in the book, has more standard formal ballads. And that's a thing I've been interested in as a researcher. Spending a lot of time with British Romantic poets became unavoidable that that one should really explore the ballad collections they were either making, like Walter Scott, uh, or collecting, like um, Robert Burns was or James Hogg was, or imitating, as all those poets were doing. And, And... so I have this long-standing interest in the in the history of the interface of traditional balladry and literary poetry, and one finds it just everywhere in late 18th and early 19th century culture, and, and people talk about the first so-called ballad revival or the first so-called folk revival in the latter half of the 18th century, and obviously this has an extraordinary destiny in Ireland, which I, uh, and that trajectory I'm, I'm less familiar with, and that's been very interesting to um, learn more about from other scholars of Irish literature. So to see somebody like Tom walk into something that could seem curatorial or museum-y, possibly twee, none of which Tom Picard is, and that he connects both the formal and the, the political oppositional force of popular balladry back to its roots. And it's as if he were reseizing it from these patrician antiquarians who entombed these things in books. And one could say that Tom is, you know, rechanneling or reliberating that kind of air that he kind of finds in Jamie Allen and then uh, channels through his own very active, very live-minded 21st century subjectivity. So that's one reason I particularly uh, admire his book and also just his general poetic being. Let's hear Tom Pickhart himself. The Charm. That uh, little poem sets up the book Ballad of Jamie Allen, which uh, Jamie Allen was an 18th century uh, Northumbrian piper, gypsy piper living on the borders of Scotland. And uh, he was an absolutely brilliant musician, which got him out of scrapes all of his life. When he wasn't making money as a musician, he would uh, steal horses, and uh, his favourite trick was to join the army for the recruiting money and get the recruiting sergeant drunk and then escape and do it again with another regiment. So there was all these legends about him where I grew up in the north of England, which still has, and perhaps it's the only place in England, which still has a living tradition of balladry. And um, I researched and I wanted to find out how true all of these were about this uh, wicked piper. And I went to the National Archives and found uh, his criminal records, and also uh, his army records in the Book of Deserters, where his name appears frequently. Many of his crimes were capital crimes. Uh, He was usually rescued by some aristocrat because of his incredible skills as a musician. So the book consists mostly of kind of witness testimonies to his crimes and a range of ballads, and this is one of them. It's called uh, Hawthorne. 
Poet and translator David Ferry has received numerous awards, including the Ruth Lilly Award for Lifetime Achievement in Poetry. He read at the Poetry Now Festival over the weekend with Irish poet Peter Fallon. When I spoke to David Ferry, we talked about Patrick Kavanagh's words that he dabbled in verse and found that they became his life. And David Ferry told me how he came to his life in poetry and what road took him there. Well, I think it was when I went to Amherst College, I didn't know what I was going to do. And that was in 1942. And then I got, I was a freshman there and then I got drafted and was away in the army for four years and came back and had marvelous, two marvelous teachers, one of whom was Reuben Brower, who became a very famous uh, teacher at Harvard and so on, and and uh, surrounded himself with remarkable writers and uh, Richard Poirier and, and 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 my wife Anne Ferry and and uh, and Paul Deman and David Calston and wonderful in a, in a very famous course at, at Harvard, but it, it very much affected my life, and I I don't think that I I, I wanted to be uh, a teacher. And I knew that when I was teaching, that my teaching would be what it turned out to be, would be mainly not about ideas and so on, but mainly about what happens inside the lines of poems. And so I think that meant I was bound to become, and that that, that was dabbling in the sense that uh, that uh, Kavanaugh's, I think, saying. And so I found, I found myself writing some poems when I was a graduate student, and a couple of them got taken. And uh, so I began to think I was a poet. <laughs> uh, and turned out to be, I mean, it was, it was a slow process. Uh, my first book was published in 1960, and my second book was published in 1983. And uh, I was writing poems during that whole period, maybe one or two a year and so on, and, and in no hurry, it never happened. And, and then it began to speed up. And then it, it was, I began in the 1980s to, to also become a poet who was part of his poetry was translation. And about half the books in, that, in, the, in the book of that period, which is called Dwelling Places, about half of it was translations in some some ways, and uh, you know, uh, and uh, then I got a, a lot of this was kind of passive in the beginning because I didn't know anything about the Gilgamesh epic, that fantastic poem. But I had a good friend named William Moran, who was the Babylonian honcho at Harvard, and that time was a very close friend. And, and he began giving me assignments in versifying some passages that he had done word-for-word uh, scholarly translations of, and I just got hooked, and, uh, and, and so on. I did that, and the same thing happened with my Latin translations. I'm not a, not a Latinist or a classicist. I, mean, I had just sort of minimal education in, in high school and college and, and Latin, and uh, but Donald Corn Ross was a great classicist at, at Boston University. Liked my poems and, and and liked the Gilgamesh that I'd done. And he began to give me assignments in uh, in uh, in the, the 
odes of Horace, and of course I fell in love with Horace. So in making your versions of Horace or Virgil, for example, you work from a rough English translation made by somebody else. Yeah. My reading of Latin developed sufficiently so that I would know the Latin of the text I was translating very well, and then I'd start my whole life over, you know, to, with the next, next one. But a lot of it was the developing feeling that, in fact, when you're translating, you're actually writing a poem in some absurd way. I'm just finishing writing uh, my Aeneid, right? you know. I'm writing the lines, and, uh, and so on. In some ways, it's taking possession, for good or ill, of course, but there it is. And I think anybody, good or not, a translation, it's, it's got that. Uh, but, of course, what's happening is that those passages from the, the Aeneid or, or and, and, and uh, oh, Peter will, will verify this from the Georgics that we, we have in common, develop their relation to, their, to, to our own poems and to our lives, in a sense, and because we're hearing it a human voice, and the, and the voice is all about pleasure and deprivation and suffering and, and, and so on, and it, so it becomes, to me, one enterprise throughout. Virgil's Georgics, uh, which you translated, also translated by Peter Fallon, the yeah. Irish poet, um, Virgil's poem of the earth, as it was described, and uh, also described by Seamus Heaney as Virgil's dream of how his hurt country might start to heal. I wonder from your your reading and translation version of it, would you share that that interpretation? I would. And uh, the that that in in some ways the Aeneid reads to me like a sequel of the Georgics in that in that sense of but both both of them are about how vulnerable any any culture is. And so over and over, Aeneid and in their and their their search for getting where they're going for good or ill uh, are starting over all the time. It's, a, it's almost a, you know they find themselves in in Libya and it uh, there's a passage that reads almost as if they were all over again inventing fire and so on and starting again. And the Georgics are so much about how dangerously close to the, the edge, in a, sen- in, in a sense. The, the simplest act of farming is, and, you know, and, uh, and, and how disease is always there, and, and uh, self-destruction is, is there over and over. Seamus has a beautiful translation of the ninth eclogue of Virgil, uh, where the, the shepherds are, you know, one of them has been, Augustus has given his farm to return soldier from Philippi and uh, and so on and and he's despondently heading for market to give it all up and they're losing their their songs in a sense and they're they're hesitantly trying to remember them together and it's a and it's a, a Seamus translation is is very beautiful, and I I read it in relation to mine, and so on, with a a lot of fellow feeling in that in in, in that regard for the mutual understanding. We probably understand things in some ways in different ways at the same 
time, and 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 each with with our own limitations and capacities and human beings. But but what you just quoted from him, in a sense, means a lot to me in relation to the the whole enterprise and those those translations of the, of that particular heartbreaking uh, ninth eclogue. Uh, I think that that ninth eclogue looks forward to the Georgics in a, in a sense, and to the to the Aeneid with its whole account of how precarious the whole human enterprise is. Heaney and and Yeats, of course, two of the great poets of Ireland and, and of the world. And I I think you, in many ways, look to this country, look to Ireland as almost something of a a kind of holy ground of of poetry. I don't know any poets who don't. <laughs> Of course, my own primary experience is, is uh, I suppose, the poets that I have always been most concerned with have been Wordsworth, whom I wrote a book about. And I now see, decades later, in, in that book, in a sense, that, that I hadn't yet read the Georgics of Virgil, in a, in a sense, but how it's, it's not just an appreciation of, you know, scenery and... Or even of, but but the, the, there's a, a desperation in both poems and that, in these regards, and poets, and then for me the other holy ground is the the poetry of Wallace Stevens and Robert Frost, and William Carlos Williams. I think pretty pretty good trinity. Uh, could I ask you to read a poem that I think you read? For Seamus Heaney one night in in Boston, um, a, a poem a, in a sense about rhyme, but about a great... and the shaping of poetry, but about a great deal more as well. Yes, yeah. Of rhyme. It's, it's a wonderful poem about poetry, about life, and about that extraordinary, I suppose, journey of one into the other, and how the poem emerges in, yeah. in life. Yeah. Well, I mean it to be a poem about... a poem finds out what it is as it, as it goes... No matter if you said beforehand something over simple like "I mean this to be about such and so," you know the poem is finding out by little decisions inside the line what's going to happen, and that's what feels to me like reading any wonderful poet. Like, and I use this for an introduction to to Seamus uh, uh, on that occasion, but also about how. When you're writing, in a sense, you're also, in some sense or other, finding your birth name, which is also a gravestone marker, you know. But it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's the poems finding that out. And uh, I only have a couple of new poems since my last book, Bewilderment. But one, one of them is, "Who is it?" <laughs> um, and in a certain way, it's the same thing. In that poem, finding out who is it, you know, who it is, very. And, and distrusting what its answer is because you have to start with another poem, you know. Richard Wilbur has said that your, your, your major theme has always been human loneliness. Yeah. Um, have, you been, have you been aware of having a major theme? Uh, no, but when he, when he said that, I, I saw what he meant. And I, I think it's... I'm a little uncomfortable about you know, what it's all about. But it is true that a, a, a lot of poems are about, or have lines in them which would corroborate what Dick Wilbur said. He's my son's 
godfather and so we're old friends I'd love to hear uh, one of one of your translations one of your versions uh, from Catullus the dedication to his book uh, which is particularly apt to so much to Cornelius Nepos who is it I should give my little book to so pretty in its pumice-polished covers. Cornelius, I'll give my book to you, because you used to think my nothings somethings. At the time when you were the first in Italy to dare to write our whole long history, three volumes, under the sign of Jupiter, heroically achieved. So take this little book of mine, for what it's worth, whatever, and oh, Patroness Virgin, grant that it shall live and survive beyond the century. What, what we all wish for, that <laughs> something, something will survive, yeah. something will yeah. last. Your sequence of poems uh, in bewilderment responding to the poems of Arthur Gold yeah. is, is striking and, and very moving. Tell me about Arthur Gold and his work, because I, I, I didn't know him. Well, Arthur's only in his life, so far as I know, uh, wrote ten poems, and they were all poems during the period of the conclusion of his working out of his fatal cancer. And uh, they were very moving to me, and I, I wrote a letter that was about my reading of those poems and the language in that, that letter, which I never got to show to, to Arthur, but which he knew about became the language of the poems that I was writing in, uh, as, as readings of his work. I think, and part of that was very personal, part of it, I think, was also exemplary in the sense that, that reading somebody's work, other work, whether you know them or not, becomes of interest in relation to their life, but, uh, but of, of interest as... Uh, as something in the common enterprise, in a, in, in a way, of finding out through those poems, in a sense, what it, what it felt like doing your own work. And uh, my reading of, I think, quite extraordinary poems of, of his became ways of writing, in a sense, a kind of love letter about his poems, in a, in a sense, in our sense of our, our friendship and my admiration for him, but uh, but was also a way of studying what somebody else's lines were, exemplifying in sort of common human experience that we that we had, and and also were showing that Arthur's poems, like mine, and and like everybody's, but in 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 a way very obviously about mine, are also using other poems, other writing in a sense, whether by, by means of translation or by acts of reading and so on. And uh, I keep, there's a poem of, of, about Arthur's poems about lying on the beach, Asbury Park, you know, and I, I too, uh, Arthur and I, went, uh, came from the same towns in Maplewood, and like everybody else, we went to the marvelous Jersey Shore in the, in the uh, summer, and lying on the beach and so on, and, and Arthur seeing on his father's chest, in a sense, the, the hair that was, that, that was in his mind 
what Whitman saw the, the, the hair that grows on the, on the graves in a sense, in, in a sense. And hearing the ocean coming in, Arthur is virtually quoting, in a sense, the greatest passage in Wordsworth, uh, the Wordsworth's dream of the Arab Quixote, the Arab Quixote figure who, who's hearing the waters of the earth gathering upon us and uh, so on, that for me is basic uh, experience in reading and in being alive. I mean, and so, so, that I, so I could not use the poems of, of Arthur in the sense in, in my work. Browsing in your book of No Country I Know, the new and selected poems and translations, I, w- I was delighted to find uh, the poem Garden Dog, which has a kind of an unexpected <laughs> link back to Ireland, uh, <laughs> slightly off kilter, uh, yeah. but a very, very, very funny yeah, and certainly yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I might ask you to read it. Alan Shapiro said a, a rather wonderful thing about you and your work, and I quote him. He said uh, he is one of those rare poets who seems, as we read this poetry, working out its concerns to grow younger and wiser all the time. <laughs> do, do you feel younger and wiser? <laughs> yeah, I don't know the answer. You know, it's certainly not wiser. Um, you know, I'm very old. Um, very old. And that's uh, a puzzle. Because <laughs> I don't feel like that, you know. Especially you don't in a, in a, in a poem or in any kind of act of trying to get it said. It becomes part of the material, in a way. You know, I have, I have a poem and, you know, called Soul that kind of makes fun of that condition, and it does it, I hope, from, from sort of the outside, not entirely from the inside. Uh, things aren't as bad as that, uh, <laughs> as that poem says, for the uh, fun of it. Partly for the fun of it. But it does mean, I don't know about... Uh, older, you know, younger and wiser, but uh, uh, you're writing anything about yourself, you're, you're somehow in the situation you're writing about, and you're, and you're outside it in, in some way, and in some way you're kind of, in a way, taking control of it, um, and uh, figuring it out, just as in that poem, uh, you know, the, the poem is getting itself kind of in charge of it by temporary stakeout. And I'm just looking at the blue sea here, the harbour in Dunleary, and thinking of how seawater takes on different qualities in different places and with different lights. And I I think you found it quite alluring here. We decided yesterday we all want to move here. (laughs) American poet and translator David Ferry there. Another contributor to this year's Poetry Now Festival that took place at the weekend was Liz Berry, Here she introduces and reads her poem Christmas Eve from her collection Black Country. This poem's called Christmas Eve and I wanted to paint a picture of the Black Country, the area in England where I grew up, on one special night of the year. I wanted to have a look down some of the alleyways and roads and explore some of the characters who we might find there. Liz Berry, one of the poets at this year's Poetry Now Festival as part of the Mountains to See DLR Book Festival in Dunleary. On next week's programme, the Baroque in music, painting and words. Do join me then. Good night. <laughs>